I would invite you to take your pew Bible, and we'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 14, that's page 1162. Page 1162. If you're willing and able, would you please rise out of respect for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Amen. So far, the reading of God's word. And I would invite you to turn to page 264 as we look at Ruth 3. Ruth 3, a challenging chapter to consider this evening. As we continue our series through the book of Ruth. Congregation, hear the word of the Lord. Then Naomi, her, that is Ruth's, mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight, at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor, and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turn, turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. 
And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city, and when she, had, and she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Amen. Please be seated. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. And Father, as we open your text together in a challenging portion of your word, pray, Lord, that you would give us charitable ears and pray that in all the confusion you would send out your light and your truth that you would lead us to your holy hill that we may be certain of your love for us there at Calvary lead us to the rock who is higher than us show us Jesus Christ and him crucified and everything else Lord may we see that Be with us now, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, love will make you go places you didn't think you'd go. It'll make you do things you didn't think you'd be doing. Case in point, my parents probably watched The Great Mouse Detective with me about 500 times. (laughs) Uh, They didn't do that because they liked the movie so much. They did it because they loved me. It's weird if you see an adult watching a kid movie by themselves, but if they're with their kids, suddenly it all makes sense. Love makes a difference. Another example, you go to the mall, you see a guy standing outside the store, and what does he have in his hand? A purse. Normally, men shouldn't be holding purses, and so you make fun of them a little bit. But you know that he's holding his purse for his wife because he loves her. And suddenly, it all makes sense, doesn't it? Love will 
lead you to places you didn't think you'd go, make you do things you didn't think you'd do. And, you know, all kidding aside, Ruth's love for Naomi has put her in a crazy position that not one of us would encourage a family member to go into. It reminds me a little bit of the story of a father who loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son to save us. Think about where love sent Ruth. You think about where love sent Jesus. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, where is God's love sending you and me tonight? Where is God's love sending this church? What positions will we find ourselves in because of God's love? I want to look at this passage first by looking at the the plot, and then I want to look at what happened that midnight, and then finally, I want us to find certainty in all the uncertainty of life. And so, look with me at verse 1. You see Naomi there, and what does she say? She says, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you? She's talking to Ruth there. And you remember how Ruth has been loving Naomi. She's been working sun up to sun down in the fields, gleaning grain, working her hands to the bone for love's sake. And so Naomi wants something better for her. I want rest for you. I want a home. And then verse 2, here we go. Is not Boaz a relative with whose young women you were? Remember, we met Boaz last time in chapter 2. He was a good man. And now she's mentioning he's a relative. That might seem a little bit odd to us, and it is, frankly. Um, And we need to understand what's going on here. Just at the outset, there's a lot of cultural baggage and and legal things that we need to understand as we open chapter 3, if we're going to understand what's going on here in our text. Uh, Boaz is a relative. He's a family member, or you could say a kinsman. He's a redeemer, as we find out. And what does that mean? What's a redeemer, boys and girls? What what does it mean to redeem? You can bring a coupon to the store and get it redeemed for something, right? You could have a coupon for a free ice cream cone. You bring it to the store, they give you, you redeem it for an ice cream cone. Uh, A kinsman redeemer is someone who buys back his family. He buys back his family and the land that's included with it. And this this is where it gets a little tricky for us to understand what's going on. But in Israel, in the Old Testament, there was a law for the kinsman redeemer. They called it leveret marriage there in Deuteronomy 25. And the idea was that if a man dies and he does not have a son, his wife, the widow, would be then married to the brother-in-law. And the brother-in-law would supply a son, an heir, so that the widow could be taken care of, one, but also so that the land could stay in the family. And so you see there's a moral aspect there, caring for the widow, caring for the oppressed, but there's also a ceremonial aspect, the land aspect. And this is is where it gets tricky, because the land was pointing to the eternal inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ in heaven. And so for the land to be cut off from the family, that's saying something very bad about what would happen to us. 
Jesus Christ will lose no one. And so it's important that the family continue to have the land and that the widow be provided for. And this law did a great job of doing both. Now, of course, we don't still practice this law. We don't have kinsmen redeemers today, do we? It'd be very odd. Uh, but we do take care of widows. And that law continues in that sense. The moral aspect continues. We still care for family members. And so, as we understand that, we understand that the kinsman redeemer was really a substitute for the dead husband. Look back at verse 2 then. Here's, that's playing in the background of Naomi's head as she says this. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. I think, is that, what's the threshing floor? Well, as a farmer would go out and he'd, he'd do his harvest, he'd bring his grain in, and then they'd go to the threshing floor, throw it up in the air, and they would winnow the barley, and they would let the chaff blow away, and there would be the grain. And that sounds innocent enough, but oftentimes in the ancient world, the threshing floor was, well, it was a house of ill repute. It was where a lot of pagan festivities took place. It was a communal area. And um, we know this is the time of the judges. And so this is seeming like a little bit of a sketchy request by Naomi, and she goes on. So go to the threshing floor, then verse 3, wash, therefore, anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down there. And so she's, she's giving three things, and that's basically an expression in the ancient world. Wash yourself, clean up, anoint yourself. That would include oil, perfumes, and put on your cloak, put on your best garment. In other words, make yourself look attractive, and then go down to the threshing floor. And then what does she say? Once he has finished eating and drinking, then make yourself known to him. You should be feeling good. And when he lies down, wait till there's privacy. Observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. And that, again, is an expression. We see it elsewhere in the Old Testament. It's, it's more than just feet. Um, and so we were challenged by this expression by Naomi. And we're uncomfortable with it. But Ruth says she'll do it. All that you say, I will do. And we wonder, what is Naomi asking? And it's ambiguous at best, as far as I could see. It's clearly meant to make us feel uneasy. And it's not something, let me say this explicitly, this is not something you or I are called to do. Let me be very clear about that. This is not something that we should ever call someone to do. And the confusion continues to grow as we move into the second point. We look there in the midnight scene. Here comes Ruth there in verse Six. So she went down to the threshing floor. She did what she was commanded. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the heap of grain. 
And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. You wonder what the scene was like there at the threshing floor. You might think, well, Boaz was a righteous man, and we know that he was. But this was usually a communal area. Usually this was one place in the town. And so however righteous Boaz was, he still had to go to this communal area where things probably weren't very nice. And we can tell that because he lies down at the heap of grain. He's guarding his grain so that it's not stolen. It doesn't bode well for the community there. It says that in verse 7, his heart was merry because he had drunk. We wonder how merry was Boaz. And our mind should be going to Genesis chapter 19 as we consider the story of Lot, righteous Lot, with his daughter that went in after he had too much to drink. And then Moab came forth from that terrible night. And we're thinking, oh no. Is that what is going on here? Or is this the complete opposite of all of that? Is this just a Moabitess doing what Moabitesses do to Hebrew men? Or is Ruth the complete opposite? And there's two ways you can take it. It's ambiguous at best. And then it says she uncovered his feet. Again, ambiguous. They laid down ambiguous. I can't tell you what happened or didn't. And then verse 8, at midnight, the man was startled, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? It's so dark, they can't tell who they are anymore. It's not Ruth, it's not Boaz, it's the man, it's the woman. Everything about the scene is confusing. Everything about it is upside down. Who are you? I don't know who you are. I don't know who I am. And as dark as it was, the request rings through loud and clear. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. You are a redeemer. Spread your wings. And that should be triggering us back to chapter 2. Remember, Boaz provided grain for her when she was starving. He was God's wings of protection. And now he's saying, or she's saying to to him, be God's wings of protection. Give me a son. Marry me, is what she's asking here that night. And what does Boaz respond with? What does Boaz respond with there in verse 10? May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. I wonder, what's the first kindness? Is Ruth in love with Boaz? Is that why she's there? The first kindness doesn't have to do with Boaz, brothers and sisters. It has to do with her kindness towards Naomi, that she had spent her life, she had flushed her future down the drain to give herself for her mother-in-law, out of love. That was the kindness, that was the chesed, the love that was shown 
by Ruth. And now he says, I get it. This next kindness, that's even better than the first. You're not just working now. You're giving all of yourself. You are a complete substitute. You are the life of Naomi. You've given your body as Naomi now. You're a proxy here in this place for her. You're not doing this out of a fling. You're doing this out of self-sacrificing love for your mother-in-law, to care for the widow, to redeem the widow. That word redeemer, just like that, made everything clear. He says that you could have gone after young men, wealthy men, and we know Boaz was probably pretty wealthy. He was a pillar in that community, but he was likely older, commentators say. He was in all likelihood a widower, maybe 50, 60 years old, and Ruth likely pretty young, probably in her 20s. And here she is doing this for Naomi's sake, not her own. Verse 11, Boaz says, I will redeem. I'll do all that you ask. Everyone knows that you are a worthy woman. That idea of the worthy woman, it's the the woman of virtue, actually. It's It's a very unique phrase there in the Bible. It actually comes from Proverbs 31. The woman of virtue, the woman of character. He could see her love for her mother-in-law. And that's when he says, you're the woman of character that no one can find. Is this the place or the time that you thought you'd meet the Proverbs 31 woman? Boaz then comes to himself and his integrity shines through here in verse 12. It's true, I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer closer than I. Whatever else is going on, he's saying we have to go through the proper channels. There's somebody else we have to talk to. We have to go through all of this before anything else happens. That's integrity. Boaz says we have to go through with it. But there's also some shame. Remain night. Why? Well, perhaps it was safety. But if you see someone walking in the middle of the night at 1 o'clock from the threshing floor, people are going to talk. People are going to talk. And so he's hiding her secret. He says, don't tell anyone that there was a woman here. Let her stay. And let it not be known that she came to the threshing floor. And she got up before anybody could recognize anybody else. And that's symbolically crystallizing just the confusion of this passage. What happened? What didn't happen? She gets up before anybody could see. We see her as the substitute who loves her mother. Notice who gets the grain at the end of the story. Naomi gets the barley. The barley is brought home to the woman who stayed at home and rested while Ruth was spending everything she had loving the widow. This is unique. 
There's many things that don't hold up today because of where we are in redemptive history and the economy of how God has redeemed the world. And we see here, it may or may not have been legal with kinsman redeemer. We know the story of Judah and Tamar, and we know that Tamar was called a righteous woman by Judah after all of that. Is Ruth justified here? All I know is that today, not a hint of immorality is to be found among us, brothers and sisters. There's a lot of uncertainty in this passage, and I think there's a lot of uncertainty in our lives today. But despite all that ambiguity in the passage, redemption is sure in the daylight, and we need assurance. We need something certain without ambiguity. One of my concerns, brothers and sisters, is that this is a scandalizing passage. And if we've read it correctly, I think it is scandalous. And the passage itself points that out with the way that it keeps things secret, it keeps things hidden from us. Whatever your opinion is of what happened there, I think we can agree on that. It's uncomfortable. It's difficult to understand. And we ought to be scandalized by it. If we're not scandalized by it, that's a problem. But a concern I had as I was reading it is that am I more scandalized by what I think may or may not have happened that night in Ruth chapter 3? I know happened at Calvary. Am I more scandalized by Ruth than Jesus Christ dying in my place as my substitute, as my redeemer? Are you more scandalized by this chapter or by Jesus Christ and his love for you? Consider the plot of your redemption. It wasn't a fling, it wasn't a last moment get together. Go down to the threshing floor. Let's see if this thing can work out. No, Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. There was no ambiguity in Jesus Christ's mission to save us. He came to die and bleed for us. God the Father so loved the world that he sent his Son that whosoever believes shall not perish but have eternal life. He didn't send the Son into the threshing floor. He sent His Son into this world that is brimming with sin. He sent His Son into the house of ill repute to save His people, brothers and sisters. He didn't make Himself attractive to do it. He didn't wash himself and anoint himself with perfume and put on his best garment. He didn't make himself look glorious. Scripture says that he had no form or comeliness, no beauty that we might find him attractive. He veiled his deity behind human flesh. It's 
the scandal of the incarnation. Have you and I become inoculated to the scandal of the incarnation? That's what, it just smashed the Greek philosophers to bits when they heard that God took flesh and became a man. Have we become inoculated by cute little baby Jesus at Christmas time? There's nothing cute about it. It's a sledgehammer to the system of the world. That's the scandal of Jesus Christ's incarnation. His love, for love's sake, he became poor. The Greeks refused to believe. And he came into this world. He took flesh not for a possible fling, not for pleasure, but to spend the night in agony and torment and torture and anguish, forsaken by the Father upon the cross as he suffocated there under the weight of all our sin, the infinite taking on flesh so that he could hold the eternal wrath of God there on the cross for you and me. That's scandalous. And as he hung there, it wasn't a secret that he was hanging there with our shame. No one hid that secret. They mocked him openly as he hung there naked upon the tree for all to see, dying like a criminal. Is that where you think you would find the man of virtue? Dying the death of a criminal for love's sake. Truly, this was the Son of God. And consider the reward that you and I receive by faith. That not only are we forgiven by his sacrifice, but we are given the reward of his righteousness. We call it his active obedience. Everything that Jesus Christ did for us, he was our substitute. All the obedience that he rendered unto God the Father is counted to us. who rest on him by faith alone, sitting at home. Brothers and sisters, have you been scandalized by that gospel? The love of Jesus Christ that saves the worst of sinners by grace and grace alone. Lord, you will not wash my feet. How many of us have said that to him? Lord, you will not wash my feet. Let me do it. This is far too humiliating. This is far too shameful for you to have done for me, the wicked sinner that I am. If I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. Rest upon him. Look to him in all his scandalous love for you, that in the, the death of an innocent man, the law was fulfilled. And though it's scandalous, I can tell you that God's love for us and Jesus Christ upon the cross is absolutely certain. There is no doubt. Even when everything else in this world is being blown up and, and we don't know which way is up or down or left or right, and I don't know what to do, I know that God's love is certain in Jesus Christ. Even when I don't know what the right answer is, even when I don't know where to go from here, when I need wisdom and discernment, Jesus Christ's love is certain. Even when it looks like we're in situations where we're being thrown in and we're looking, we're trying to do everything, every little jot and tittle of the law, and we look down and what's the right thing to do? 
that feel like we're right at the edge of the law. Because you've been there, and you will be there. People come into the church. They have all sorts of past, all sorts of demons that are fighting for their attention, fighting for their soul. What do we do? How do we love them? How do we do it? And we look down right at the edge of the law, and what do we see? Underneath it all, love has no edge. Love is boundless. Love never ends. And love is what's holding the law up. That's what it's pointing to. All the law and the prophets hang on what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself because Jesus Christ has loved you with scandalous love. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you that you spared no expense in sending our great kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, into the world to take on flesh for us guilty and vile sinners, to suffer the scorn of the cross and open shame as they mocked and wagged their tongues and said, where is your God? Lord, we thank you that we are counted righteous because of your love. Stretch us O Lord, in your love, send us where we need to go, that we might love those who are lost, who are confused. And when we are confused, lead us to the rock who is higher than us. Show us your light in the midst of all the darkness. May we look to Calvary and see your love, which is always certain. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.